0: Hello everybody and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 604. In episode 604, we heard from longtime friend of the Melgars, Stephanie Davies, who not only had a longtime personal relationship with Liz, Sandy, and Jim, but also attended the same Kingdom Hall. Liz added a lot of insight into her experiences with the Jehovah's Witnesses in general and also was able to relay a few stories about the Melgars that I think is beginning to paint a little bit better picture of how that family and that household ran. Now, we have a lot of questions. Some are directly related to this episode. Some of the questions are just about the case in general and where we're at right now. One thing I did want to correct after Mike and I went to the DA's office in Houston this week, last week in the follow-up episode, I mentioned the sex toys. And I had said that they were under the pillow, but not up under the pillow like the bed was made, because that's the photo that I had seen when I saw the full set of crime scene photos when I was in the office. I just do want to make a slight correction in the fact that the little baggie of the the sex toys was in fact under the pillow and the pillow was in the place where it would be when the bed was made. The bed wasn't made. The the pillow or the, the covers were pulled back away from it. But the sex toys were visible from under it. They weren't completely under it. Uh, I just It's its a slight correction, but I want to make sure they're being accurate. Because I had said that the pillow was like in the middle of bed. And it was when I saw the picture, but that's not where it was to begin with. So with that correction being made, we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, hopefully we we'll answer all your questions, just so everyone's aware. Mike and I have been on the road in Texas working on three different cases. We've been in Arkansas, Dallas, and Houston. And we were gone for nine days. We just got back late last night. It is mid-morning Thursday. So we're way, way, way behind schedule. But uh, I think we can get this done. So, Mike, let's go ahead and get started.
1: Awesome. Okay, our first question comes from Megan. Does Jim's family, the ones who found Sandy, believe she's innocent or guilty?
0: Herman and Maria and Marissa and Monica... Uh, those are the family members that found Jim that night. Uh, we, we had the pleasure of meeting them and interviewing them uh, last week, and you're going to hear those interviews coming up on, or at least some of them we're not quite sure, what we're going to do in such short time between now and Sunday. But the answer to the question is they believe she's innocent. Uh, they've stood behind Sandy. They continue to stand behind Sandy, which is speaks a lot because, remember, this was Jim's family. That's Jim's brother and sister-in-law. So uh, but yes, they they believe that Sandy is innocent.
1: Okay, Jennifer says, do you have autopsy reports on Jim yet?
0: We do. We just obtained those at the DA's office. I've given it a cursory glance. It looks like a very well done, detailed autopsy report. Uh, But I have not had time to thoroughly review it yet. But we will be doing that and we'll be hearing about that in coming episodes here very, very shortly.
1: And while we're talking about the autopsy, Renee wants to know what was the actual cause of death and which wound was the final kill.
0: Um, again, we haven't reviewed it in its entirety. We've we've seen autopsy photos and crime scene photos, unredacted crime scene photos at this point. And I don't know. I can't quite answer that question as far as which one. I, I believe the autopsy report, the conclusion was uh, death was due to multiple stab wounds. I think from the little bit I was reading, it sounds like, Death was caused by blood loss from all these wounds, as well as I know that a few of the the stab wounds did puncture the lungs. uh, And so that will eventually cause the lungs to fill with fluid and, and you will pass away from that as well. But I don't I don't know all those details just yet.
1: Kathy says, why would Sandy have been allowed to make the decision about going to the hospital when she suffered obvious trauma? Shouldn't the paramedics and police have insisted as a precaution?
0: That would have been nice, but, uh, you know, Sandy didn't have any obvious injuries. And there's, you can look at that a couple of ways. I mean, she didn't look like she had been beaten up, so maybe there wasn't an intruder. She did keep complaining about her head hurting. uh, But at the same time, she also didn't have any injuries to indicate that she'd been in a struggle with her husband either. She was very insistent she was fine and didn't want to go. She's standing upright. She's not bleeding She has no obvious signs of injuries. There were some marks on her forearms, uh, some red marks and some bruising um, inside of her arm, like the inside of her bicep. And she was complaining of uh, head pain, but she was insistent that she was fine. So they can't make her go to the hospital if she refuses.
1: Okay, and this one's from another Kathy. She writes, can you talk about why you needed an attorney when you were in Texas? You had us worried. Also, do you think you might be able to talk to one or two jurors? Super curious why a reasonable doubt was not considered. Okay, uh to answer the first
0: one for those of you that aren't on the Truth and Justice podcast fan page, what she's referring to was a post I made it. We weren't actually looking for an attorney. We were looking for uh someone in law enforcement or uh former law enforcement in the the where were we at? The Dallas area. Um, and I can't really get into why Uh, I can just tell you that it is related to one of our cases and, uh, very important. And, and I think that we have the situation under control now. Um, but no, we were, we were not in any danger at the time. It just, yeah, I, everything's fine (laughs) as best I can tell you. And then as far as the jurors, um, I'm hoping to reach out to some jurors. I think that likely they'll be willing to talk because they, a few of them did speak on the dateline episode although remember when we i feel like the first time we watched it the dateline episode which we saw on demand there was the the jurors being interviewed and then when we watched went back and watched it again later that part wasn't there.
1: yeah they might have shortened the episode once they threw it on on demand or i don't know yeah i
0: don't know it's super strange so uh but there was an interview with the jurors uh, and again it wasn't in the video or on the, the, the on demand when we watched a second time so i'm not sure what's up with that but. Uh, to answer the question, yeah, we will at some point probably be reaching out to jurors, and hopefully some of them will speak to us
1: all right, Carrie says, did the d a have any actual evidence against Sandra, not theories no, I mean, not that I've
0: seen and and I mean, you heard her you know she had the opportunity to come on the show and make her best case, and you know as she said, it was a circumstantial case, in my opinion, it's circumstantial and speculative, and the majority of the case against Sandy was one, her story didn't make sense, and two, the prosecutor doesn't believe that a home invasion makes sense. You know, and, and there were some things that I struggle with even more, even after we did the follow-up last week, about things she said, especially after we went, and we, we drove through the neighborhood and looked at the neighborhood and, and the house and all of that. You know, she said things like, you know, why would someone break into a house when someone's home? You know, and she said that that didn't make any sense. But the thing is, that happens all the time, like literally every day. The, there's there's home invasions, strong armed robberies. So it's not like it's out of the ordinary. So there were a lot of assumptions made there, but I, I don't know. There was no, from what I've seen, there was most certainly no physical evidence tying Sandy to the murders. There was no other indicators either. It was just a simple matter of that was their strongest theory, the theory proposed by. Sandy in the defense doesn't make didn't make sense to the prosecution and that's what they went with and the rest of it's all circumstantial spin your passion into a business of shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout let's hear that one more time No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Marissa says, "If Sandy could have pulled off his death and staged the scene with her being bound and boarded in a closet, how would she have been able to free herself if no one came into the house to find her? Could there have been any way possible she could have freed herself before wasting away? Even with the family planning on coming over for dinner, that didn't guarantee they would enter the house on their own."
0: No, and that's a really good point because that was if that's the scenario where this was staged, that's one hell of a risk because. Yeah, if they didn't come in, the way she was barricaded into the closet, she was barricaded from the outside, no, I don't think she would have been able to get out. I mean there's there's just no way, especially now, especially knowing the way she was tied that we'll talk about on Sunday, um, if she was able to get out of her bindings, uh, which I think was probably impossible um, you know in the in the prosecution series that she she bound herself. but even if even if that's true, she may still not have been able to get out. but uh, with the chair barricading the door from the outside, yeah, it was a risk because she could have just been left in there to die uh, by
1: her own hand, according to them, because there was there was no other way out of the closet. Jen says, you said the safe was packaged and stored by the family because it wasn't collected by the police for examination. Will you be sending it off for a forensic analysis? Uh, well, you have to remember that
0: this case is an act of appeal and uh, Sandy has lawyers working on her case. So that's going to be a decision that the lawyers would make. We are in communication with her attorneys, and certainly there's things that they, they just can't ethically share with us. But, yeah, that's something I would like to see done at some point, but that's going to be a decision made by uh,
1: Sandy's attorneys. Marissa says, if Sandy is guilty by murdering Jamie herself, did the prosecution explain how she had absolutely no blood or wounds on her from doing so?
0: Well, as we've mentioned, there are no trial transcripts yet, so I don't know how that was exactly addressed at trial. You know, there was obviously there could be theories that she cleaned herself off, but there's problems with that. The according to uh, the motion for a new trial, which references the police reports, which we have all those police reports now to go over, which we're going to be going over here in the next several weeks as we're going to start really digging into actual evidence at this point. Uh, But the indicators were that they were they checked the sink drains and the shower drains and uh, even the washing machine for traces of blood and didn't find any. So. Um, that's a good question. I don't know how that would be explained away. Uh also I'm not sure how it would be explained away that if there were blood if there was blood on like Sandy's clothes, if she was wearing clothes when it happened, uh then where would she put the bloody clothes because they weren't in the house either. So there's still a lot of questions to be answered about a lot of that stuff.
1: Travis says if Sandy is willing to stay in contact with someone who was disfellowshipped from the church, knowing that the contact would likely get herself disfellowshipped. Then why would she be worried about being disfellowshipped if she wanted a divorce? That's another one of those you know where we're trying to put
0: ourselves in the mindset of of someone else, and it's just impossible to do that. But uh, I think what they're getting at, and I one hundred percent agree with, is that that just doesn't that doesn't work for me. It doesn't compute. It's just it's completely inconsistent uh, with the idea if she's so worried about maintaining contact with her friends, but you know we learned from Stephanie uh, and we've heard from other people and family members that. You know, the the Jim and Sandy, especially Sandy, I think even more so Sandy, really made her decisions much more based on her conscience than any rules. Uh, and Jim, too, you know, even as an elder with uh, the situation with Elizabeth, uh, when she was raped and they, they disfellowshipped her, they refused to kick her out of the house. He stepped down as an elder. So, you know, when you factor all that in, trying to connect the dots on this, this Jehovah's Witness motive, it just doesn't add up, doesn't add up at all.
1: All right, Liz says, were the neighbors' surveillance cameras visible to people passing by? What areas of the Melgar's property did they cover?
0: Uh, So we drove by, and as long as they're in the same location now as they were back then, if you were looking for the cameras, you could see them. Uh, There was one across the street on a garage, and one uh, in the house behind the Melgar's house, on their uh, like under their eaves towards the backyard. They're small little cameras. Uh, If you were looking for them, you could see them. As far as what they cover. I don't know yet. We've held the disks that have those videos on them while we were in the DA's office, but we don't have those copies yet. Uh, The gentleman in the DA's office that's working on filling our requests uh, is going to be making those copies for us, but right now we don't have them yet. From what we've read so far in the police reports and narratives and all the offense reports, it sounds like the one from the backyard only covered... Basically, the report said it was useless because it just caught a tiny little corner of the Melgar's backyard. The one across the street, I believe it was a motion-activated camera, and it caught the street and maybe, like, the edge of the Melgar's driveway. From what I've been told, and again, I have not seen this video yet, what they knew from that video was that no cars drove into their driveway. And also, this is a dead-end street, so, you know, in the middle of the night, there's probably not a lot of traffic. But so I think what they were able to gather from that other surveillance video was simply, like I just said, that they think they know that no one drove a car into the Melgar's driveway after they went home.
1: Sarah says, did any of the businesses or rental incomes that they had yield cash? Wondering if anyone knew there was cash in the house. They would have known Jim and he would have known them, but maybe Sandy would not have known them. Therefore, they didn't need to kill her.
0: Well, as far as the cash goes, uh, I don't know if any of the, uh, the rental income brought cash. I'm sure the medical billing stuff didn't. Uh, however, all of the family seemed to agree, including Liz and Herman, Jim's brother, that they always carried cash. So keep in mind, that this is the type of guy that doesn't do credit cards, doesn't doesn't go into debt. I think the only debt they had was maybe on one or two of their rental properties that they used, um, like like a line of credit type of situation where they could use that house to buy another house. I believe their actual home was paid for. So this is a guy that carries cash all the time. And that became relevant because both Sandy and Jim's wallets were on the bed and ransacked through and there was no cash left in them. And, And according to all the family, there should have been cash there. As far as theories about somebody that came in that knew Jim and didn't know Sandy, I think that the reasoning behind that theory will kind of melt
1: away over the next several episodes. She adds, "How long before the murder did the rape of their daughter occur? Could someone be silencing Jim's defending of his daughter for legal reasons or religious reasons, etc.? I don't think that it would have to do with that incident,
0: but again, we're not ruling anything out at this point. We're so we're a long ways away from theory. We're not. We don't have enough information yet to really develop a good hypothesis. Um, certainly not uh, a full-fledged theory. Uh, as far as the rape, I I reached out to Liz this morning, but there's a three-hour time difference, so." I haven't heard back from her yet, but I do know from some other sources that the Liz's rape in that incident occurred at least 2 years before the murders occurred. So, and it may have been, been longer than that. Uh, I'm just not sure, but I do know that it was at least 2 years before. So, that's a pretty long time for things to cool off and get back to normal for someone to then decide to act on that situation, um, but you know we'll dig a little bit more into that uh, with the family uh, to see if there's any more to that, but you know again, it was I, I think it was quite a bit longer than than two years before, but it was at least that. And keep in mind that Liz had been living in Europe for the last two years prior to the murder. she was still living in Europe during the murders, so point being there wasn't a lot of controversy going on about that situation right then that I'm aware of.:
1: Her last question is, what was the weather like on the day of the murder? Would the windows have been open that day? Maybe to air out the house. If the dogs urinated on the floor enough to warrant a mop and bucket as a permanent fixture in the kitchen, I
0: have to go back and review the weather for that day. And we did before we did episode one. I think it was just you know 70s, maybe low 80s. It was it was a nice day. Uh, but what we do know from the uh, the crime scene photos and stuff that we saw and some of the reports that we've seen over the last week. Uh, We do know that all of the windows were closed and locked. And apparently, that was something that Jim was pretty meticulous about, according to his daughter Liz, uh, about keeping the house secured at all times. And speaking of keeping your house secure, we're going to take a quick break here for this week's sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by Ring. Ring's mission is to make neighborhoods safer. And all of you already know about their smart video doorbells and cameras that protect millions of people everywhere, including my house, our studio. We've been using Ring products for just over two years now. We have the Ring video doorbell on our front door. We have stick-up cams in the front yard, the backyard, and the studio. And just before we went on vacation, we installed one of Ring's new products, the Ring Spotlight Cam with solar panel. So we didn't have to hardwire anything or even charge any batteries. Ring helps you stay connected to your home anywhere in the world. So if there's a package delivery or a surprise visitor, you'll get an alert and be able to see, hear, and speak to them all right from your phone. And that's thanks to the HD video and two-way audio features on Ring devices. So let me tell you how this works. So like I mentioned, we have the Ring video doorbell on our front door. We have ours set to notify me when there's motion or when somebody rings the doorbell. And you can control all those features to be alerted as often or infrequently as you'd like. So when someone comes up to my door, even if they don't ring the doorbell, I get an alert on my phone, I bring it up, it takes me to a live video stream of what's happening in front of the door, I can see and hear what's going on, and all I have to do is hit the talk button, and I can have a conversation from anywhere in the world. In fact, last year, I talked to one of Parker's little friends all the way from a pool in Mexico, who kept coming over every day and asking if he was home. And that video doorbell installed in like, I don't know, three minutes because we already had a doorbell installed. So all we had to do was just unplug the two wires from the old doorbell, plug them into the new one, and we were good to go. So we also have all the stick up cams and those are super easy to install. All you got to do is charge them up, connect to your phone, stick them anywhere you want to have them. But I really think that my new favorite one is the spotlight cam. We were able to get it up high to get a great angle of the entire area around the studio. It's motion activated, and it has LED lights that light the area up if anyone comes anywhere near. And just like the doorbell, we can see and hear what's going on, and we can even speak back to the people in front of the spotlight cam. And that one is connected to a solar panel, so we set it and forget it. We never, ever have to worry about battery strength or anything like that. It stays charged all the time. And as our listeners, you have a special offer on Ring Starter Kits that's available right now.
1: Hello, it is Ryan and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumba Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily
0: bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
1: See website for details. Amy says, was Jim killed before or after he was tied up? How would he have defensive wounds if he was bound? But why tie up a dead body if the fight happened first?
0: We don't know for certain until we can really do a deep dive into the autopsy reports. Based on what we do know and from the crime scene photos. I think that he was killed after he was bound. I think that's pretty clear. Unless this was an extremely elaborate plot to stage this crime scene, and we'll get into a lot of that more as we as we dig through the crime scene and we start to build our profile and stuff over the coming weeks and, and months here. But my opinion is, from what I've seen so far, that most definitely he was bound before he was attacked. In fact, I'll I'll go this far as to say, A working hypothesis right now is that he was complying, got bound, something triggered him to start fighting. He got loose of the bindings from his arms, and that's when the fight ensued, and that's when he was killed.
1: Stephanie says, did the autopsy point to a frantic blitz-style attack or slow, methodical torture of Jim? Again, I'm
0: just speaking from the photos we've seen so far and not the autopsy report because we haven't studied it in detail yet. But I would say absolutely a blitz-style attack. This is. Nothing, and I don't know, Mike, you've seen him, I don't know what your opinion is, but I don't see anything that indicates a
1: slow torture at all. This looks like, a, to me, a brutal fight. Yes, it does. Marcella says, If Sandy had practiced the pillow sham trick like the prosecutor said she did, who would have gotten her out of the closet then?
0: Yeah, this is a good point. It was made by a few people, including Stephanie Davies, who we interviewed last week on the the fan page, that how do you practice that trick? And still get out, and it's it's a good question. If she if she practiced uh, as as was theorized that she practices many times, barricading herself in the closet with a chair trick. If she was successful, then she would be trapped in the closet, and there'd be no way for her to get out. And and I can't even imagine what that would be like if she had to then call for her husband to come get her out of the closet that she just for some reason locked herself into with a chair from the inside.
1: Pamela says what quote evidence if any did the prosecution give at trial that Sandy wanted a divorce or was it only presented in opening statement and closing arguments
0: I don't think there was ever any evidence anywhere indicating that she wanted a divorce that was simply a theory as far as I know was only presented in trial for minor standing excuse me it was only presented in the like the closing arguments and maybe the opening argument, opening statement but I don't think anyone was able to find anyone who gave any indication that either of them were having an affair. I mean, there, there was no indications of uh, of an affair on either side. They absolutely had no money problems. They didn't have massive life insurance policies or anything that, you know, would have been life-changing or would have been a, a solid motive. I mean, they they had more money than available to them than what they would have received from life insurance. So, no, I think that was just a theory. I don't believe there was any actual evidence to support that. And also for you ask your next question, Mike, I did just hear back from Liz regarding the question that we asked earlier about when the rape occurred. So Liz was sixteen when the rape occurred, which was eleven years before the murders. It was two thousand one. It didn't come out until two thousand five. So she was about twenty one years old when it came out, and that's still seven years before the murder. So This was way, way, way in the past by the time uh, Jim was killed.
1: All right. And I think we can thank you for clearing that one up. Yeah. Chris says, with respect to the appeals process, where is Sandy currently at? I'm aware of the motion for a new trial. I'm just curious where things stand with court filings and her options.
0: Well, that's basically where it's at is the motion for a new trial. So the the conviction is very, very recent. As a matter of fact, I just happened to look at the calendar right now. Today is August 23rd, so you're going to hear this on the 24th. So when you hear this, yesterday marks one year from the day Sandy was convicted. So it's been exactly a year since she was convicted uh, in a Harris County court. So they're in the direct appeals process. The motions for new trials have been filed, but it's still a slow process because of the fact that they ha- they don't even have a court reporter's record yet. Uh, I mean, the t- transcripts, they they had the trial transcribed. And then, of course, as is common, they the lawyers will go through it with a fine-toothed comb to make sure that it's accurate. There's noted some errors, and we're waiting for an updated copy of the transcripts so that we can, well, m- more importantly, so that her attorney's going to get that, but also so that we can get a hold of that and get it published out to you guys. And along those lines, the web, a lot of you have been asking about photos and crime scene photos, things like that. We're starting to get a lot of that stuff, and we need to get it out. And where that will be is on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. And it's not there yet, and that's 100% my fault. Um, I've been trying to connect with Katie Ross, who does our website. And when I say trying to connect, I reached out to her. She's told me like five different times when she could talk, and it just all happened to be while we were on this trip, and I just haven't been able to find the time to connect with her about how we want to put this together. But keep looking at truthandjusticepod.com, our website for case documents under Season 6. They'll be coming very soon, as soon as we get them all over to Katie and she starts updating that. And also, hopefully, we're going to get going on the the transcripts again here, too, to get the transcripts up.
1: Anita says, did the defense explore the possibility that Sandy witnessed more than she remembers? Perhaps the memory loss from the specific night is a result of emotional trauma rather than a seizure. If this is the case, then maybe she still has some memories buried in there somewhere. I don't know specifically what the defense did, but
0: uh, we do have most certainly more on that later. All right, and Wendell says, was the gun in
1: the closet ever found?
0: It was. It was in the closet. As you heard Sandy say in the interview, he didn't keep it in the safe. She said he was stubborn and he didn't want the safe. He wanted it where he could get at it. And it was actually found, he was found in not quite a seated position, but kind of with his back against the wall, leaning against the wall. uh, More of a slouch seating position. And the gun was on the shelf right over his head. Steven says, who owned the backpack found in the garage filled with Sandy's jewelry? The backpack belonged to their daughter, Liz. It was one of her old I think she said middle school backpacks, and it had an xbox an Xbox game, and uh, some jewelry and uh, Also something we figured out in the during this trip was uh, during my interview with Colleen Barnett, I asked about the blood on the Xbox, and she said she didn't remember that she was correct. there was no blood on the Xbox. There was, however, an Xbox game in a case and there was blood found on the Xbox game case
1: in the backpack with the jewelry and the Xbox. Toby says, At the start of this case, if I recall correctly, Bob said he thought that this would be one of the simplest cases for T&J to solve. Was there anything in particular that led him to say this? Well, I didn't quite say it would be
0: the simplest case to solve. What I said was it's the most solvable case, and there's a lot of things that factor into that, part of it being that it's so fresh it's new, you know. We're not dealing with trying to track down twenty-five, you know, witnesses from twenty-five years ago. You know, memories are still a lot more fresh in people's minds. And also, this is a, a just a case of absolute blinders by the police. Whether you can argue about whether they got it right or wrong, but it, whether they got it right or wrong, it was just blinders. They all you could hear it. I mean, hours after Jamie's found. The crime scene investigators are still processing the scene. They literally know nothing. And you can hear in the interrogation of Sandy Melgar that they already had their mind made up, that it was her. And because of that, there were, we know, of of several investigative leads and angles that should have been followed that they never even bothered to look into. So there's those investigative leads there. And then there is evidence. There's there's evidence there's there's DNA evidence that we're going to talk about as we move forward in a few different places that if this was a home invasion most or an intruder most certainly came from the killer and it was never compared to anybody so it's a matter of kind of connecting dots between you know potential suspects and we have fresh preserved evidence to test it against. Uh, so, yeah, I think it, it's it's very, very solvable. But I I didn't want to make clear I did not use the word simple. Nothing is ever simple.
1: All right, this one's from Stephanie. Who actually made the plans for the family dinner? How were plans made? The plans were made directly between Jim and
0: his brother Herman. Uh, and we we confirmed that last week in Texas when we met with Herman and Maria. Sandy had nothing to do with those plans. Jim made the arrangements with his brother to have this dinner. Rebecca says, was there any surveillance
1: footage recovered from the CVS or any neighbors?
0: There was. We talked a little bit about the neighbor surveillance uh, at the beginning of the episode here. And I think that they found surveillance footage for sure from CVS where they confirmed when uh, Jim and Sandy went into the CVS. And I don't remember. I think it was they only had it inside. They didn't catch them in the parking lot. But they confirmed that there wasn't from the, the offense reports, it looks like. They didn't get anything out of it that they found useful other than to confirm they were there. I don't remember they got anything from Los Cucos or not. But yeah, there was video surveillance and none of it was helpful. But then keep in mind, you know, we still want to review this stuff because it wasn't helpful. But it's also very clear that these detectives developed their theory first and tried to make evidence fit into that theory as they went along. So like I mentioned just a minute ago, there's a lot of other directions things could have went. And if they weren't looking at it with an open mind, which we'll, we'll see when we dig into it, if they
1: were or weren't, then there could be something there that they didn't notice. All right, and our last question from Katie. In the Dateline episode, the EMT stated that Sandy had no marks on her body, and even Bob said Sandy only had a cut on a finger, yet in the Dateline episode, they showed red markings on Sandy's arm and even a black eye. The inconsistencies make it hard to keep the facts straight. Can you help me sort that out? Well, there's a lot of inconsistencies, and that's because you have different
0: people pushing narratives out there, and even a lot of misunderstanding. And so regarding Sandy's injuries, uh, there was a lot of talk from the EMTs about no ligature marks on her wrists. We said there was some bruising on her arms, but to be honest, part of the issue and the confusion was that I was confused. By, By seeing the photos and the injuries that she did have, I couldn't make sense of them. And so I was having a hard time explaining them, but that was until... I interviewed Herman Melgar, which you're going to hear about Sunday on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer. And all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer of Willow Photo and Designs for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And a special thanks to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month, And we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the -the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation in the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at truthjusticepod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing, And this has been Truth and Justice.